Welcome to RAGE, the podcast of the University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE for short. I am the show's host, Tom Romero, and I'm a professor of law and history here at DU, as well as IRISE's director. For those of you that have been following, RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. In the era of black lives, dreamers, the Flint water crisis, Standing Rock, and vigorous backlash against these movements, everyone is seemingly talking about race. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars in op-eds, blogs, and essays have often been front and center in these formulations, as has been a resulting backlash or failure to critically engage with some of these insights. Indeed, in many cases, the work of race scholars has often been marginalized and silenced, while policies, practices, and discourses of colorblindness and post-racialism have reigned supreme on our campuses and in our local politics. The result has often left race scholars silently raging at the intractability and inability of higher education and our large society, for that matter, to take racial privilege and anti-racist discourse seriously. This particular podcast is is part of a three uh, podcast series that is meant to be interconnected. Set of conversations with female scholars of color that explore these tensions in context of a series of books that each recently published that examined race and gender in higher education. Sitting with me here today is Christine Vega, a PhD candidate in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, Social Science and Comparative Education at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the co-editor of and contributor to the recently published book, The Chicana Mother Work, Work Anthology. And it has a subtitle, I'm pretty certain here, because without mothers, there is no revolution. The anthology weaves together emerging scholarship and testimonials by and about self-identified Chicana and women of color, mother scholars, activists, and allies who center mothering as a transformative labor through an intersectional lens. Contributors in the book provide narratives that make feminized labor visible and that prioritize collective action and holistic healing for mother scholars of color, their children, and their communities within and outside academia. Ms. Vega is also a visiting community scholar here at DU and we are just so thrilled to have her here today. So, so thank you, Ms. Vega, for joining us today. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank <laughs> you. It's, uh, for those that can't see it, they'll be hearing this podcast, it finally feels like spring outside. It does. So um, I think this is a great time to, to be thinking of, of energy and renewal. So, mm-hmm. so thank you. Um, our podcast uh, has asked every scholar of color that, that we've had conversations with, to tell us about their journey into higher education. And so we're gonna do the same. Tell, tell us about your journey. How, how did you get to this place? Okay, well thanks Tom for having me and um, providing the space to be in the podcast. Usually I'm on the other end as a podcaster with the Chicana Mother Work um, Collective. So I'm like, I'm actually nervous <laughs> for the first time. But um, to speak on my journey, um, I in some of the work I do and folks who know me, I'm a first gen Chicana. Um, college student in the U.S. Um, my parents migrated from Mexico, and so my first language was Spanish. Um, I went to schools, public schools in the Northeast San Fernando Valley, Pacoima specifically, where Richie Valens is from. Um, and I, now that I have the context of the experiences of tracking in higher, in higher education and K through twelve education, I understood that because of language barriers, I was tracked early on. And um, my easiest way of communication was showing my teachers that I, through art, that I can translate the content through artwork. So I'm kind of like a, 
I am an artist, but I haven't been able to develop that, that skill because I decided to just pursue higher education. And so it took a while for me to um, transition from Spanish speaking to English language learner, as an English language learner, which used to be called ESL back in the day. Um, and I had teachers who were advocates from the very beginning. Um, and I think during middle school, I lost some of that support also because of poverty and a divorce through my parents and just mis like just moving around a lot. I didn't have the best, the quality education I feel like I deserve and all students deserve, specifically for students of color who are first gen. Um, and it wasn't until late high school, senior year, when um, two major things happened for me, other than getting caught from like by ditching in mm -hmm. <laughs> 11th grade, getting caught and being truant, um, I was really like frustrated with school. I was really bored, like nobody was invested. Um, I was forced to take U.S. history during the summer for, because of court, and I was also forced to choose um, courses outside of I, my high school and do community college courses, which at that point was Chicano Chicano Studies. That changed my life. Um, I wasn't aware of the history. I wasn't aware of the trajectory of the Chicano movement in LA and across the nation. Um, and so that really shifted something for me. Um, like everything I went through, especially, especially in high school, was intentional and I didn't have the language for it, but I got real upset and really angry, mm -hmm. that rage. That was one thing. Second thing, um, seeing Danzantes. I've, I've, I've never seen Danzantes and one of my best friends, one of the friends that I used to teach with um, was a danzante. And I saw her um, prepare with a danzantes at the, at the opening of the Cesar Chavez March in San Fernando. I was blown away. The, the, the heartbeat, the drum, which we call wewe, it really did something for me. So then I started to investigate and ask questions. And somehow, some way, I made it through the last year of high school. I got lucky one more time. I, I swear it's like, some kind of intervention from the universe. A uh, mentor, femtor, named Alejandra Hernandez, I'll never forget her, came in from UCLA Center for Community College Partnerships to basically recruit students to participate in this summer transfer program for students who were not necessarily going into universities right away and um, advocating for the community college pathway. And I wanted to get out of the house. I signed up. I was there for a whole week. I told my mom that when she was dropping me off, driving up Sunset Boulevard, this is going to be my school. She didn't believe me at the moment. Um, it became my school. I, was, I just became really passionate um, about my own educational trajectory. Like, and similarly, for other students of color like myself, I, I really started to think about my friends in high school who didn't make it. Um, and so then I wanted to be like Alejandra, and I wanted to be the danzante. I wanted to be like the teacher, professor in Chicana Chicano Studies. I wanted to be that mirror for students who didn't know, or didn't, well, didn't know they have an option to pursue a higher education. And then once I went into um, UCLA for Ch in Chicana Chicano Studies and Women Gender Studies, it just shifted me another, like another 360. Um, I learned about Daniel Solorzano's educational pipeline. Uh, community cultural wealth from that I also so I was just pulling the knowledge that I didn't know was so critical for my own scholarly development but also my own advocate development to advocate for student services student rights history cultura all those different things really informed um, who I currently am and why I decided to pursue a PhD 
Um, so, so many things played a really big role, but I, I always track it back to high school, just that moment in time. Yeah, that, that's powerful. Um, I'd like to just explore a little bit more about um, the dynamic uh, between your friends, your families, uh, particularly as you started to think of a space like, like college, right? Whether it's community college or whatever, um, as, as an option and an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, uh, and particularly as a first-generation student, mm -hmm. right? Uh, someone who doesn't have um, mentors within the family, right? About this, this being spaces, this being higher education, being a space for us. Mm -hmm. right? See, I'm curious, any thoughts and reflections on, on just the interactions with, with family in particular, but also friends? From friends. Yeah. Well, I think because I was the first to pursue a college degree in the U.S., I need to mention that. My tia in Mexico, um, in Chihuahua, she's a critical pedagogue, and she's like this hardcore feminist, and she has her own uh, critical pedagogy institute in Chihuahua. When I found out about that, I was like, I really needed you a long time ago. <laughs> um, but I was just really happy to know that we were on similar pathways. Um, so that's one thing that I think I, I could talk about later. But here in the U.S., I think it was really difficult, to be quite honest. Um, my mother had a hard time uh, finishing high school, which really informs my work also currently on, on mother, mother scholar and maternal theory. Um, she was forced to drop out of high school when she was 17 when she found out I was, she was pregnant with me. And so um, I think for a long time, and we talk about it now, thankfully, now that I have my child um, and my partner who's also an academic, we talk about those complexities and tensions when she was unable to support my dreams and my ambitions to pursue you know, college and a higher education degree. She didn't understand it. And for a long time as a young person, I think I had a lot of rage and a lot of resentimiento, a lot of resentment that I didn't know where to place versus like understanding that it was systemic. It was you know, migration impact and all these other factors. Now that I have language, I can understand that. But at that moment, I was really angry with her. She, several times she asked me to drop out of college um, to help her maintain the household as the oldest. Um, so there was a lot of resentment there. But I'm so stubborn, and I think my stubbornness uh, really helps in these instances where I'm like, no, I need to keep going. Mainly at that moment, because I wanted to be that mirror for students in the future, but also because of my siblings. Um, and because I understood the injustices and I didn't want to face similar circumstances as my mother living in poverty, working so many jobs and trying to maintain a household. I just refused to, um, to live like that because of how much she suffered. So there was tensions with my mother. Now she's the proudest mom ever. And there was tensions in my community because I was a community organizer for a long time. And they're like, oh, you think you're the bomb because you're leaving to college but little did we all know that I also was I was one of the um, first ones to leave but I created a pathway where my colegas my, my really close friends my my just my heart my community they started to go to college too like they went to UC Berkeley they went to UCLA they went um, I think some of them left out of state to UT Austin so we created that pathway together but I took the heat the first I mean as one of the first ones um, now we're just, we're completely like the same community. We're really supportive of each other in our academic endeavors. But at the beginning, it was hard. And so I guess I say this to like forever, for whoever's listening as first gen, it's going to be hard, but we just have to keep pushing forward. And at the end, 
they, our community and our family might be upset and resentful for a little bit. It's temporary. But it's because they don't want to lose the connection, I like to think. Yeah. Um, but we remain connected either way. So, I mean, that's what happened <laughs> with me. I mean, hopefully it's not the same case for others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you highlight the importance of families, and I think the, the conceptual, both the conceptual idea and the reality and, and the identity of, of mothering in particular, mm -hmm. right? I think it's, it's certainly tied to the project that's the book. I'd li I like to hear more about the book. Um, I know uh, you are a founding mother of both the Mothers of Color in Academia de UCLA and the Chicana Motherwork Collective. Mm -hmm. um, and so share with us about the book and, and that story and, and mm -hmm. the connections you're making um, as part of this anthology and your particular contribution to it. Absolutely. Um, this project was born out of maternal, what, I, what I'm coining, maternal microaggressions um, that I experienced while being a PhD student at UCLA. Not just my own, but also informed from the data I collected because my research, my dissertation focuses on the intersections mother, of motherhood, race, class, gender, and sexuality in the impact of navigating higher education. And so I think now I can name it and I can actually like, ah, this is what it was. Paternal microaggressions, my advisor Danny says it's a response, right? It's like, it's a response to marginalization. And so this book came out of that, just feeling um, isolated, number one. Number two, not knowing where resources and access to support services were at my campus, um, but also the way going back to the microaggressions, also the way folks express themselves about pregnant presenting people or parents, in particular women of color bodies, um, really made me really curious to really like push back a little and ask like, where is this coming from? And so um, I would look for other women of color and other women who were pregnant, not just necessarily women of color, to ask questions about what, what are they doing to navigate, you know, during the time of the PhD. Um, and I came across four different women. One of them I already knew was a parent. She was my colleague. She's in this, um, she's one of the editors of this anthology, Judith um, Perez. Um, she, I had met her at the University of Utah during my master's program. And she was the first mother scholar that I remember seeing. I didn't pay too much attention, attention to her at the time, but I knew that she was a parent. Then I met Dr. Yvette martinez Vu by accident on the south side of campus, which is mostly white and science and life sciences and, and hard sciences. She was buying lunch and I just approached her because there's markers that I look for, which is red lipstick, hoops, or beaded earrings, <laughs> and she just looked brown. So I'm like, I wanna ask her where she got her little roller, her little roller bag, because I was really pregnant. I needed a roller bag. Um, she happened to be pregnant at the same time. So we were just pregnant a week apart. I met her by accident, and then um, she knew Ceci Caballero from the Mellon Mace research um, program, and somehow, long, long story short, Michelle Deyes' piece came out, the lectures, evaluations, and diapers on single motherhood as a Chicana in Arizona in the professorate, and we all had heard and seen it through Facebook, and we were all reading it because we were parents, we reached out to her um, for a panel of Mother's Color and Academia for ASA. She said yes, that she was happy to come down to LA and have this panel together. From there on, we just started to dream big. 
And that meant let's write an article together, let's apply to different conferences together, let's have a podcast, and everything just flowed. And all five of us have different strengths that we can bring to the table. And this is where my artistic abilities come into play. Like they let me do whatever I want with the creative part of of our work. Um, we all write, we all edit, we all blog together or edit the blog that we have. We all participate in the podcast. So we all do something together. And one of the main things after our manuscript came out in 2017 with Malx was as an, an idea of an anthology. And it was really good for us as grad students to kind of have Michelle, who had experience um, denial of tenure, tenure track, having those conversations with her as other scholars were really important for us. Um, and also just seeing, seeing her through the process, reading her material when she was speaking truth to power was also really empowering for us. So part of that and knowing our experiences were really unique, we decided that we would put, a, put together a book proposal and just kind of like follow the lead of Michelle a little and figure out how do we approach a book press to, uh, uh, to write a book, an anthology. And we did, and U of A, Pre U of a Press, um, Kristen, and the Feminist Wire series, the, the folks there have been super supportive of our idea from the very beginning. Um, and it just, it just took off. Um, we had put a call for papers off for a month. We, only assume, we assumed we were gonna get only 20 submissions. We had 86, which was a lot. So we know that the need is there. Um, so this is, the book is, speaks for itself. We're just offering, we're, we, 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 we say it's an ofrenda, it's an offering. Um, for the community of mother scholars nationwide. That's great. Well, well thank you. I, I, I imagine um, it could serve as a, as a roadmap, really, mm -hmm. to, to sort of how, how one balances all these identities in, in your own book and, and, and online. You describe yourself as a proud mother scholar activist, right? Mm -hmm. Merging both academia, activism, spirituality. Um, you also, you know, uh, so arts, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of, you know, sort of creative works. Um, as a roadmap, um, if we were to, if, if you were to come back and survey, kind of do this same call again in five or 10 years, mm -hmm. um, what would you hope would be different um, coming off, building off of this work and, and some of the insights of this work? Well, I think I'm going to do long-term and, sh and short-term okay. because most recently they're asking for a second volume. We've had so much, um, a lot of positive feedback, um, a lot of affirmations, a lot of love, a lot of rage in a good way. Like folks are starting to shift that pain of being silenced and closeted. Um, and one of the main things that's coming out of this particular anthology has been really exploring sexuality and gender. Um, and even though our call was really open to include non-binary, trans, queer, um, parenting and people of color as parents or just the decision not to be parents, that conversation is taking off. And it's something I realized at Knox this, uh, this uh, past spring, that's a conversation people wanna have. So I foresee if we decide to do the second volume, um, which we, we want to, we just want to like take care of this baby first, um, is to really address those issues and be very specific in terms of that kind of area of, of, of work. But we've also realized how much pain, it's, 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 it's a lot of pain that's around it. Um, five to 10 years from now, 
I would like to think that um, I think that's when we take a step back and let the new scholars, the new generation of folks take it on. Because we're building off Patricia O'Collins and Audre Lorde, Gloria Salua, and Jerry Moraga. And all of them, queer, well, not most, not all of them, but most of them, as far as we know, are queer identified mother scholars. Um, and so that's the direction we foresee it going, but we don't know if like, it could change into anything, yeah. really. But in some ways, right, you, uh, 10 years down the road, all of you, many of you will be tenured. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so some of you might be in positions of, of leadership mm -hmm. um, and power. And so I think in, in that regard, too, um, I know it's really early to think about this, but I, I, I imagine some of the anthology is written, right, as ways to speak, as you said, truth to power, mm -hmm. right? Um, so as leaders, as, as you can imagine yourself as, as leaders, either a department chair, uh, a dean, a, a provost, what, um, what do institutions of higher education need to do to recognize the experience of of mothers, scholars, activists, scholars of color, mm -hmm. women scholars of color in, in, in these spaces? Mm -hmm. I think um, number one is definitely um, focusing on student services as like parenting students. There's an, there's like, there's these discussions around, we're not non-traditional, we're, non we're just parenting students and we have different needs, right? Just like similarly, like our brothers and sisters who are undocumented, who are transfer students, who are veterans. This particular uh, group of, of students, one in five are parents, and we don't know because we don't collect that data. And there is an institute nationwide that does collect this data, but institutions in particular need to uh, take the onus off student organizers to seek and look and implement these kind of uh, surveys, qualitative and quantitative. Um, that has to come from student services. That's one thing. Number two is have a task force for parenting students in the university and, and working with Title, Title IX and working with equity and diversity offices if they exist and also working with just student services in general, including healthcare services. For example, clinics um, or hospitals that oftentimes will discriminate because they legally cannot um, treat a pregnant presenting person they have to go to their, their hospital. So it takes a lot of work and it's, it's, it's a long process. So those are the main things that I can think of from the time at UCLA organizing as a MOCA, but also in reading so many different, I mean, we've read over 80, 86 um, submissions, plus just the literature that I read for my own dissertation. Universities need to be responsible. Um, for this particular population of students who will not disclose because they're not supposed to or they don't have to that they're parenting students. And in particular for students of color, I think there's a call to action in terms of how we need to, and I say we because sometimes we have this embedded um, sexist and racist idea of what a student should be. And um, we need to start removing ourselves from those stereotypes that we've grown up with. It's part of the social fabric. Um, in regards to folks who become parents, in particular women of color. And we can imagine um, what that might entail. Um, I provide a workshop, I did it um, at different places that I asked students to, give, to, to share the stereotypes that they grew up knowing of pre pregnant presenting high school students who are women, 
um, college students, university students, and they're all the same, and they're really painful. And when you change the script to think about that in gender and, and, and think about them as men, it's really different. So we really need to start challenging the way we think and the way we have internalized the sexist and racist idea of, um, of, of pregnant presenting and parenting students, particularly women of color. Institutionally, right? It's it's so important, mm -hmm. um, and you know, sort of re reframe and reimagine mm -hmm. exactly what, what what you what we think in higher education is as a student, right? Um, a few more questions. Um, I know some of our listeners, particularly those who are, are grad students who are navigating higher education as uh, particularly uh, students of color, critical scholars, um, they probably see. You you co-authored you you co-edited a book you you contributed to this anthology you've you've started a collective you've you've created an organization um, some words of advice and wisdom for how you've been able to manage that because <laughs> you have a smile on your face and, yeah. and, and, and understanding and you're yeah. doing you're doing outstanding work so I'm sure my the listeners would be really interested to hear how um, do you do it yeah any how, how do you do it well I really don't know but. The first thing that comes to mind is it's it's better when you work collectively. Um, historically at UCLA, there's a handful of folks who try to approach this work on their own, and they were marginalized. And I mean, we're building off their backs. Um, and so I think if it's, the onus shouldn't fall on the student. But I think when there's rage, coraje, and you have a passion, and you really want to shift that paradigm, you have to work together with other folks. Um, I need to shout out my comadres from Oka, Liana, Nora, Yvette, and Joanna, who are like the founding mothers of this collective who push this work forward. And again, like everybody brings a different strength. And I think that's how, one thing we need to think about. And also to challenge how we think about production of intellectual property as a student, right? I think it's hard for us to work collectively. We have to work individually and publish individually. But something like this, I mean, I mean, it's an honor to be an editor and a contributor. I've had to work collectively. Otherwise, I wouldn't have an opportunity like this. Like we took it upon us. So those are one of the was one of the major things is look for your tribe um, that I tell folks because they're gonna hold you accountable. You hold yourself accountable to this collective. Um, I had to manage working several jobs as a graduate student researcher at UCLA, organizing and dissertation and raising a child. I really don't know where that comes from, but um, I take it back. I mean, because of my own spiritual background, I like to think it's it's an ancestral rage that's pushed me forward. And to be quite honest, I, I am tired. I am tired, which is I'm like, okay, this is where I take a step back which is another reason why I'm grateful to be in Denver um, and why Danny was like, you definitely need to go. You have the fellowship. This is going to be great for you. I still organize with them <laughs> at a distance. Um, but I do very minimal things and things that, you know, that will be easier for, for me to do at a distance. And then on this, I think the last thing I'll mention for, for this is, um, is you need to find your faculty who are going to be the allies to support your work and support your dream. Yeah, you, your your comments remind me a bit. I was I was at a conference just last week talking about the importance of radical self care mm. as a way to prepare yourself 
for community care, right? I mean, and particularly the type of work that we do, right? Mm -hmm. um, community is so central to that. So you touched on all those pieces. So, mm -hmm. so thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, you've mentioned rage, I think, in a variety of different <laughs> contexts, which, which is awesome. I mean, this is, this is the name of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I think you've given us some ways to think about rage as energy, right, mm -hmm. to do this work, uh, rage as a formulation in which to to focus the work. Um, sort of at this moment now, and in terms and thinking about this podcast, and as a graduate student of color, uh, at some point professor of color, maybe provost of color, <laughs> chancellor of color, what, what does rage mean for you? Mm -hmm. I agree with you in terms of energy. I think it's energy and it's a force that's not tangible, but becomes tangible when one's committed to a goal and an objective. Like for example, I the book is it's actually it's part of is a result of that rage. Um, spiritual energy, definitely in terms of what drives you, um, what empowers you, what um, what's going to push this work forward, whatever work that is. I also think rage, and I like to think Audre Lorde has mentioned this and other amazing, I call them the aunties and godmothers of feminist theory in women of, for women of color, um, that it's also for self-preservation. Um, this work is important, but I think I've learned the hard way um, that this work is critical, but not to the expense of my health. And unfortunately, and I've shared this in the, in the Chicana Mother Work podcast, is a lot of us uh, deal with autoimmune disease as a result of the internalized um, rage. So there's, we have to, I like to argue, we have to pull it out and make it something tangible. Gloria Salua says, you dance, you write, you draw. It's an artistic form of expression. Um, you write you know, whatever, you know, that is. Um, but we just can't, we just can't embody it. Otherwise, our, our body will start to signal to us that we're getting sick. Um, so that, for me, rage manifests in different ways, just as racism does, right? Like, race is always shifting. Racism is always shifting. So does rage to fit and to respond to these instances. I love that. So thank you. Mm -hmm. That's it gives me a whole bunch of different things to think about. <laughs> so... Um, just a final question, and uh, just any final thoughts, reflections, or affirmations that you would like to share with our audience today? Yeah, I think um, I always go back to people ask a question similar, like, what does it mean to take care of yourself and heal yourself? I think that looks different for everybody. That's one thing as a student, as a mother, dissertating um, on the market has been what does what does it mean for us to take care of ourselves? And I've seen that a lot on social media, like it's revolutionary to take care of yourself and love yourself. But I want to plug in, like, um, like we we're not alone, even though when we feel really lonely, um, it we definitely need to make it a, an effort, make an effort to reach out to folks. And I lived in two different states outside of California. I lived in Utah. And I lived here in Denver, and I've had to push myself to look for community, and it's been very affirming. Um, to find other women of color and other men of color, other folks of color um, here in Denver. Um, but take care of yourselves. Like I think moving the body, um, giving yourself space to Netflix and chill for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, I Denver, we're blessed to be in a great 
like city where we have lakes and mountains not so far away where we can go for walks. So I think just the reminder that a lot of the answers, and this is part of my meditation practice, is are within, um, but are also in nature. So I guess I'm just encouraging folks, like, this work is really heavy. Um, it's intentional and it's important, but it's we also have to take care of ourselves. Well, thank you. Really appreciate your time and your thoughts and, and your expertise. Um, we're going to learn so much. And so... So thank you. Um, the Chicana Motherwork Anthology is now available for purchase uh, at a variety of different places. <laughs> yeah. So so please uh, pick up your copy. Um, it sounds like there might be a uh, volume two, and maybe three <laughs> and four coming out. So so be on the lookout for that. Um, we have reached the, another episode of the Rage Podcast, brought to you by iRise at the University of Denver. Connect with us at www.du.edu/irise. While there, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnerships, and practices to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West. Thank you.